Welcome to Movie Lover 22. It's the show that isn't afraid of the vast nothingness of space. Where if you went out into the vacuum of outer space, you'd freeze and then die of asphyxiation and your lungs would probably explode. Okay, now I'm a little afraid of it. Uh, today we're talking about the 2007 film Sunshine, directed by Danny Boyle, written by Alex Garland and starring Killian Murphy. I will spoil the hell out of this movie just so you're not caught off guard. Sheesh. Um, it's a little echoey in here. Uh, I wasn't anticipating that much echo, but um, I moved uh, very recently. And so we're just, yeah, I'm just going to take a sip of my chocolate milk here and, and we're going to move on. And yes, I do have my uh, Christmas tree scented candle keeping me company. So uh, first off, let's just get to our messages of which we have one. Uh, maybe next week. Uh, the plot in the year 2057, a team of international astronauts have been sent into space to deliver a nuclear bomb to reignite the dying sun. Um, I hope that's clear enough. I feel like it is, you know, the sun is dying and then humanity was like, fuck it. We'll blow up the sun. <laughs> and that's what we're going to do. All right, so the making of uh, this movie was made for $40 million and made $32 million. Now, let me put that in a different number, in a different uh, uh, context. It made only $5 million its opening weekend in the States. I kind of get it. It's, it's Danny Boyle, so it's just this side of being an indie flick and got financed and distributed by Fox Searchlight. And you do what you can, but holy shit, this movie is way too good to get that low of an audience. However, sometimes there's just no excuse for a film not making the money it deserves. Even Chris Evans, who's in this movie, moans about Fantastic Four getting a huge turnout, but great films like Sunshine don't get attention. I'd like to point out that's part of the point of this fucking show. Let's get to watching great movies. Anyway, it's a double-edged sword, movies and money, because I personally believe that there are too many factors that go into the success and quality of a movie to use a single weekend to determine its worth. Case in point, if this movie had gone up against a Star Wars or Marvel release, it would have been demolished. Absolutely demolished. That doesn't speak to the quality of the movie, it speaks to the interest of the general public, which can certainly be wrong. I mean, it doesn't mean that Star Wars is a better movie than the other thing, or that someone would even like a Star Wars movie better than Sunshine. It, it's, it's a fucking mood. You have to be in a mood to watch some of these movies. I have to be in a mood to watch Empire Strikes Back, even though it's probably the best Star Wars movie. And then I have to be in a mood to watch Sunshine, because they're two totally different movies. Two, I mean, they both take place in space, but they're just two totally different genres, really. At... Okay, The Rise of Skywalker, technically, it's my dog, technically did well at the box office. Technically. It, it, but it's still a piece of shit. Don't at me, we all know it to be true. Search your feelings. And I should mention, it performed the worst of all the Star Wars sequels, which is fair, but I'm trying to prove a point here. My point is, American audiences haven't been choosing the right good movies in a long time. So our litmus test 
in Hollywood on what a good movie is, what deserves a sequel, etc., is all based on how well it performs over a 72-hour period. What's almost as bad as this, if the movie performs poorly at the box office but does well on home video, sometimes we might get a sequel 20-plus years later. A, a sequel we didn't need, didn't ask for, and turned out to be shitty anyway. Coming to America, Jurassic World, Space Jam, Ghostbusters, Top Gun, Independence Day. What's worse is that those were all successful movies when they arrived, and we still got shitty sequels out of all of them. Space Jam just came out, but we know it won't be a good movie. We know it won't. At best, it'll be a 4 out of 10 movie that will have like one or two funny moments. And it'll only be a 4 out of 10 in a couple of weeks when people realize, oh man, that wasn't as good as I thought. Just like when Star Wars The Force Awakens came out. Everyone went to go see it, and they were like, it's amazing, or they hated it. And then a couple months later, they were like, I mean, yeah, it was a Star Wars movie. That's really what we wound up with. Is that what we invest millions of dollars in? Yes. Yes, it is. And you know what? What's funny is that Danny Boyle also directed Train Spotting, which itself got a sequel 20 years later. Except that it was actually well-made and well-received. So, so I think I just dismantled my own argument. I think. Nah, sequels are still usually shit. Anyway, this movie was directed by Daniel Boyle, who I love. 28 Days Later, Sunshine, and Steve Jobs are among my personal favorite films. And I can't not say that 127 Hours is a great movie. I just... Again, it's a mood. I, I, my wife really likes that movie, too. So I just every once in a while, we're like... Do you want to watch that movie where James Franco hacks his arm off? Yeah, all right. I also just discovered that he directed Yesterday, that movie about the musician who plays songs by the Beatles. And that would probably be the only reason I'd watch it. Boyle is one of the great giants of the indie filmmaking world outside of Robert Rodriguez, except Rodriguez makes some... I mean, he just makes some terrible movies. I can't stand Robert Rodriguez at this point. I respect Dana Boyle a lot, though. I love what he does, and his projects tend to be about stories he wants to tell and telling them the way he wants to, as opposed to what will get the, him the biggest paycheck. In a little bit of contrast in the immediacy of the moment, Robert Rodriguez is just like, hey, you know what would be cool? Is if we had this guy just hack up a bunch of guys and also let's save money on, on uh, fake blood and we'll just CGI it and... Technically, we made a movie. It's, it's a shitty way to do it. Shitty way to do it. Anyway, Sunshine was written by Alex Garland, who wrote 28 Days Later and Ex Machina, which he also directed. He also made Annihilation, which I think the movie was well-received, but the book was bad, or vice versa? My wife told me her thoughts once, and whatever she told me led me to not want to watch or read either, so... Uh, I like Ex Machina a lot. It's an incredible film, and it really launched Garland as a serious sci-fi filmmaker if he wasn't already one. The movie was shot by Alwyn H. Kuchler, who also shot Hannah and Steve Jobs, both of which are just great pieces of filmmaking. This movie was heavily inspired by Stanley Kubrick's 2001, Ridley Scott's Alien, and Andrei Tarkovsky's Solaris for the emotional and spiritual tones, claustrophobic feelings, and themes. Boyle had been excited to work on a sci-fi movie, and when Garland gave him the draft of the script, he left at the chance to A, work with Garland again, and B, make a cool movie. 
The movie was worked on for three years so Boyle could get everything right and spend the necessary time to complete his vision. He noted, after the production, that he would move on from the sci-fi genre, having conquered his fear of the difficulty encountered in producing a science fiction film. The movie has been criticized in the scientific community for its scientific inaccuracy. No specified origin of gravity on board the Icarus 2, a too small nuclear fission bomb, etc. Boyle has commented on these critics saying, Sunshine is not a documentary. It's trying to, just in an hour and 40 minutes, get across a feeling of what it's like, not only to be a scientist, because obviously there's much more in it than that. So I found it interesting to watch the kind of people that get upset because the gravity is wrong. I'll also add on here. Because the number of people who have said to me that they love Interstellar because the science is correct, I don't give a shit. Accuracy does not make a good movie. Do you think Training Day is an accurate portrayal of what crooked cops are like? Accuracy might make it more compelling, but if the foundation of your movie is just a boring-ass movie about a boring-ass astronaut, and your story isn't engaging the audience, then no one will care that you accurately portrayed astronauts. I highly doubt Space Cowboys is scientifically accurate, or Armageddon, but at least they're entertaining movies. I heavily maintain that Christopher Nolan has shitty taste in filmmaking, and Interstellar is a boring piece of shit. As the cop in Community put it in his cop opera, love is not admissible evidence. I should say here, though, I do enjoy some of Nolan's movies. I think the Dark Knight trilogy is great, and Memento, of course, is a great film, and I enjoy the pursuit, whatever. But, but to be that against digital filmmaking as he is, sorry, guy, but fuck you. Even Tarantino admits that his distaste for digital is preference, and he doesn't try to undercut the accomplishments of digital technology. Nolan is married to shooting films in his suit and being a pretentious ass, spouting off that digital films are inferior. Tell that to David Fincher, Steven Soderbergh, and literally everybody else making great films today. Fuck off, Nolan. You make me angry. Anyway. Boyle made the, <laughs> Boyle made the conscious decision not to include any scenes on Earth during the movie, which I really like. I really like that. And it helps keep the story contained on the Icarus and keep the claustrophobia intact. After all that, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. Whoops, I did it again. Defense Lawyers. Just because they're six feet deep doesn't mean you have to be. Anyway, let's talk about the cast. Killian Murphy as Kappa. Killian Murphy is a phenomenal actor. He really is. I can't get enough of him. I think he's great in everything. Uh, 28 Days Later, The Dark Knight Trilogy, Inception, and Free Fire. Great actor, great films. And Kappa himself is an interesting character. He's an obvious loner, given his job as a physicist, being the only person who understands the nuclear capabilities of the bomb that Icarus 2 is carrying, as well as being the only person who can operate it. He's arguably the most important man on the mission, and he would rather not be known by that. This causes friction with other crew members, as he's then left with being the only person who can make the critical decision to go after the Icarus 1 crew after they find the missing ship stopped dead mid-route to the sun. He's not afraid of making the decision, he's afraid of how other crew members like Mace will respond. He takes on the responsibility, and he's certainly not happy to do it. Rose Byrne as Cassie. Uh, 28 weeks later, that's kind of funny, uh, Insidious, The Place Beyond the Pines, and Neighbors. Uh, she's a decent actress, but unfortunately she's one of those actresses that I can't really picture in my mind. But, you know. Cassie is the pilot of Icarus 2, and she represents the humanity in all of us. When Mace is 
cocked and ready to kill Trey because he's basically catatonic and consuming oxygen when they're running low, Cassie is the lone voice who says don't kill him. She knows that it means they'll run out of air, but the act of killing one man, even for the sake of saving humanity, is unconscionable. And that's kind of all we get for Cassie. I don't have a ton to say about Cassie. Uh, unfortunately for Rose Byrne, she doesn't have much to do in this movie. Um, very few deals are made about actual flying in the sense of short-form short form piloting like Cassie would do. Instead, we make pretty huge deals about flying like Trey making a mistake in his navigation. We'll get to that. Um, I'm also pretty sure she and Kappa are romantically involved together, but that's barely touched on except for small moments between them, which, uh, to be honest, I like. Chris Evans as Mace, Captain America, Scott Pilgrim, and Before We Go, which he directed. Chris Evans, I spelled it Evans there, uh, is a force of nature nowadays. Sunshine was right on the cusp of his launch into stardom following Fantastic Four and a mix of, of a few really bad movies, but with Sunshine and the Losers under his belt, I'm making a deliberate choice not to mention his shitty movies made during the same period of time, but yes, I'll mention the perfect score, Brian. Man, I mentioned you a lot on the show, buddy. Uh, then he found his way into Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and then, of course, Captain America. Mace is a really good character. It's fun to see Chris Evans as an asshole, fully single-minded and dedicated to the mission, repeatedly furious at Kappa for making all the wrong moves, and hoping Kappa will own up and take the blame, even when it's not directly his fault. In the end, Mace and Kappa are full partners, and they're fighting towards the same goal. Even during the airlock scene, Mace puts his hatred of Kappa aside to say fuck you to Harvey because Kappa is the only true non-expendable crew member, and he needs to get back to Icarus 2 to deliver the payload. Mace is rough, emotional, and determined. I like him. Al although the most asshole thing anyone could do in the world, in the movie, and in anything ever, is when they're getting volunteers to risk their lives to repair the sunshield after Trey makes them at stake, causing severe damage, and Mace volunteers Kappa. Kappa. It's fine, yeah, blame him for the mistake that wasn't his fault at all, and then force him to go out there and possibly fucking die because you're a whiny child. Correction, I don't really like Mace, but in the end his qualities become easier to jive with considering everything that's happening by the end. Cliff Curtis as Cyril. Cyril, I think, uh, yeah. Uh, collateral damage, blow, and training day. I like Cliff Curtis. It's been ages since I've seen any of his movies except Sunshine, but I like him. Searle is the calm before the storm. He's gentle and light, friendly, non-obtrusive. He's the psychiatric officer and the doctor on the Icarus 2, and it plays well. During the mission, he becomes obsessed with the sun, spending much of his time in the observation room, staring at the surface of the sun through the filter. He tests it to see how much of the sun he could truly bear. As the computer informs him, he could stand 3.1% exposure for no longer than 30 seconds. I don't know if that's accurate, I also don't care, but it does paint a picture of how mind-numbingly powerful and huge the sun is. It's almost incomprehensible. When Kaneda is about to be obliterated by the sun, Searle urges him to describe what he sees. As the sun splashes approach Kaneda, he's speechless. Searle, being obsessed, all he wants to know is what it's like to see the full power of the sun. 100%. In the infinitesimal moment before death, when Searle decides to stay on the Icarus 1 so that the others can get back to the Icarus 2, he spends his final moments 
on their observation deck to experience what their crew experienced. He sits down next to the basically shells of what used to be the crew of Icarus 1. And Icarus 2 pulls away and there is no filter. And Searle is destroyed by the full power of the sun. In the end, he had no regrets and he achieved what he had been seeking. Michelle Yao as Corazon. Tomorrow Never Dies, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Memoirs of a Geisha. Tomorrow Never Dies is the second best Pierce Brosnan movie because Goldeneye is the best and the other two are pieces of shit. I suppose, because Michelle is Malaysian and spent most of her career getting famous in Hong Kong, I really don't know anything about her. She's done a few English movies that I've seen and they're perfectly fine. I don't have much to say about her or her character, to be frank. I admire that her character isn't just, my plants are precious, and she has real moments of trauma, loss, hope, and grit. When her oxygen garden is destroyed by the fire and all hope seems gone for her, like everybody else, she's still dedicated to the mission and is the first one to say that not everyone needs to make it to the end of the mission alive, implying that Trey needs to be killed. That takes guts. I like Corey. She's, she's good. Hiroyuki Sanada as Kaneda. The Last Samurai, Life, Mortal Kombat, and Army of the Dead. I have to say up front, I love The Last Samurai. A local filmmaker that I respect cites this as his all-time favorite movie, and I tried to watch it soon after having a conversation with him about it, but I still haven't seen it. So it's probably been over 10 years since I've seen The Last Samurai, but I'd love to watch it again. I forgot Sanada was in Life. That movie is uh, forgettable. Uh, or at least the supporting characters are. I, like, I remember the movie, but all I remember are Jake Gyllenhaal and Ryan Reynolds and a woman who... Rebecca Ferguson. Uh, but that's another actress that I can't uh, remember at all, really. And then there's the, that one guy who gets his hand broken by the alien in that movie. Whoever that is. Anyway... Um, it's forgettable. Anyway, Kaneda is a stone wall. He's a solid leader. He knows when to be silent and when the crew needs to be encouraged or diverted in their line of thinking. You know, when, when they need to be kind of overcorrected. They've gone too far one direction. He still says some things and bring them back on, on par. He's, he's, he knows what they need. He's fully aware of who's responsible for what and when it makes sense for someone else to make the, the most informed decision, i.e. Kappa, deciding to alter course to link up with Icarus 1. He serves his crew well, doing things in their best interests, including volunteering himself to repair the damages to the Sun Shield, risking and ultimately giving his own life. Kaneda is a good man. Benedict Wong as Trey. Annihilation, Doctor Strange, The Martian. I kind of don't give a shit about Benedict Wong. Dude's clearly got range, but maybe because I'm burnt out on Marvel movies that aren't Spider-Man, I just really don't care. I have to give a lot of credit to actors who take roles where they're not super active on screen, where maybe they have a few lines or a few pages where they get to have the screen and show off what they can do, but fuck, man, Wong really sells this one. Trey's the navigator, and when Kappa makes the decision to rendezvous with Icarus 1, it's Trey's job to plot a new trajectory. The crew uh, goes to sleep, 
but they're woken in the middle of the night by Icarus 2 sounding an alarm. Icarus 2, a spaceship delivering a bomb to the sun, is equipped with a shield on the front of the ship to reflect the dangerous power of the sun so that the bomb can arrive. In all of Trey's calculations, he successfully replotted their course, but forgot to realign the shield, leaving parts of the ship exposed and ultimately destroyed by the sun's power. Because exposed. If left unchecked and uncorrected, the sun will inevitably destroy the ship and kill the crew. Naturally, Trey feels extremely guilty, and after his mistake causes Kaneda's death, is then labeled a suicide risk and is put into a catatonic state until he gains the willpower to commit suicide later in the movie off-screen. Wong isn't on screen for very long, but he leaves a very lasting mark on the film in the best way. His actions, not Kappa's, affect the entire mission. Kappa made a logical choice. He didn't make a mistake. Trey made the mistake. He took on the burden, and under that stress, he forgot one critical step. Troy Garrity as Harvey. I kind of feel sorry for Troy because I only know him from Sunshine, but he was also in Barbershop and Sabotage, but I know him as the other asshole. After Kaneda dies, Harvey, who is the number two, and the communications officer becomes acting captain. He fails miserably, throwing a fit. Well, eventually. Unlike the rest of the crew, Harvey does everything in his power to put himself first. In the end, he paid for it, and it's honestly a funny moment for me when they eject themselves from Icarus 1 to soar through space back to Icarus 2, but Harvey clips the side of the opening and reels off into the infinite space only to, in the far distance, burn up like a match head when he sails beyond the protection of the shield of Icarus 2. Fuck you, Harvey. You're not important. As Mace eloquently put it, you're a comms officer on a ship without comms. Mark Strong as Pinbacker. Kick-ass to end all wars, the imitation game, Kingsman. I really, really like Mark Strong. He's great. Pinbacker, though, is a strange element to Sunshine. In a sci-fi thriller of what else can go wrong, we have Pinbacker, the captain of the Icarus One. The entire crew of Icarus One, having collectively succumbed to the pressure of the mission and decided not to go through with it, and committing suicide in the observation room where Searle eventually embraces the sun as his last act, and left Pinbacker alone to dive deeper into insanity. He claims to have conversed with God for the last seven years and that God told him to kill all of humanity and send them to heaven. He's got a lot going on. He also spent those seven years getting seriously tanned with all that sun exposure and radiation and everything else that could happen to the human body when that fucked up. Here he is, killing the crew of the Icarus 2. Now, I don't know if I want to do sections on what I liked and disliked for this episode since the rest of kind of everything is so intertwined and extensive and it doesn't seem fair to section it off like that. I do, however, intertwined. Is that a word? Intertwined. It is. That's good. Anyway, uh, I do, however, want to mention a few things regardless. Uh, the music was scored by Underworld and completely and uh, completed and refined by composer John Murphy, who notably wrote the piece Adagio in D minor. Uh, if you look it up, chances are you'll be like, oh, it's that song. Yeah, he wrote it specifically for Sunshine, and it's beautiful. 
He also composed the soundtrack for 28 Weeks Later, which also has the famous piece, Don Abandons Alice. The cinematography is beautiful and helps you feel immersed in the story. There's one or two shots I'll bring up a, a little bit later. I think I should mention the only thing I disliked, which is when Pinbacker tries to murder the crew of the Icarus 2, the camera looks at him and it goes blurry, it goes fuzzy. And I don't mind that. What I mind is that a few of the times a strange and slightly irritating high-pitched ringing noise accompanies the charred visuals. Uh, it's odd. I could do without it. And now for some thoughts. I really liked that when the sun, or brazen sunlight, encroaches the audience, the sun roars. Not because the sun has sound, because it obviously doesn't, but because it's communicating the sheer impossible-to-comprehend scope and power of the sun. The distress signal is classic space horror, the Alien franchise, for instance, um, and I like that it's in there, and it feels organic to have it in there. In a realm of space movies trying to recapture the horror of Alien, I think Sunshine sets itself apart in a clean way, where movies like Life never really had a shot, or, or they, were they were too similar, for instance. I felt bad for Kappa having to make the decision of whether to go after Icarus 1. He could make the popular decision and everything would be fine, or the potentially unpopular yet still logical reason and find Icarus 1. As he puts it, it's like asking him to flip a coin and say whether it will be heads or tails. And it's heads. It's cute that they named the ship Icarus. Too close to the sun. All too close to the sun. Especially Pinbacker. That fucker is well done. No pink in the middle at all. It's incredible to me that there is an entire ship of people willing to put the mission over their own lives. I mean, you have to, right? Everyone knew that they were flying towards the fucking sun. It makes sense you'd have to consider your own mortality before even going into space, given the people who have died trying to get there in you know past missions. Either way, it's impressive to see that just about everyone is like, oh, this is what has to be done and I might die? Okay. Except Harvey. Fuck Harvey. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, what were they planning on doing after? There is no return trip. The payload is attached to the sun reflector, so when Kappa detaches the payload in the final minutes, the rest of the ship falls away and is just immediately disintegrated by the sun. What the fuck, guys? Everyone behaved like they were going back. Not cool, NASA. Also, not cool crew members. You are smarter than that, and you should have noticed that. Poor Corey. Putting all that time into tending the oxygen garden only to lose it in the span of minutes. All she wanted was to love her plants, and she watched them burn. There's a beautifully terrible visual in the movie of her collapsed in the hallway outside the room, surrounded by flames on the other side. It's haunting. Kaneda is a boss, man. Not just in the boss sense, but a man you could really look up to. You can tell he's the leader not by chance, but because he's earned it. In the few minutes he's on screen, you can clearly see a lot of great character in him. The importance of great leadership, willing to A, do the job you'd ask your crew to perform, B, volunteer first to do the most dangerous job, and C, put your life on the line for your crew. Kaneda paid the highest price voluntarily and without complaint. Contrast that with Harvey's embarrassing behavior. 
And then after that, imagine being Trey and making a mistake that big. I saw a comment on Reddit that described his mistake as the biggest fuck-up in history. If this were a true story, I think it might be an accurate statement. The immediate consequence of causing the death of your captain, and possibly causing the imminent deaths of the entire crew, and then the eventual extinction of humanity because you didn't prevent the sun from dying. After being told that they won't have enough oxygen to even complete the trip, it's interesting to see the different crew members begin to really consider their own mortality and quickly push it aside for the sake of continuing to do their jobs. It's almost funny to think about it. If it were a different situation, flipping burgers at McDonald's, perhaps, while knowing you'd die on your way home from work, it's laughable. I recently learned for the first time about the miracle on the Andes, and having just heard about that, the discussion about having enough air to continue the mission after Searle and Harvey had died oh, feels a lot more real. A lot more real. Fucking shit, y'all. Speaking of Searle's death, it's one of the best of the movie. He also sacrificed himself for the sake of the mission, for his crewmates to continue without him for the benefit of humanity. And he died fully experiencing the sun, a religious experience he's been waiting for all this time. There's an undeniable beauty in seeing the massive jungle that had grown in the seven years of Icarus 1 being AWOL. All that green filling and overflowing the screen in a movie whose color palette is made up of mostly steely blues and grays. And even though it hasn't been that long, minutes-wise, since seeing Corazon's on greenery destroyed. Some critics didn't like that the movie turns into half a slasher at the end, and felt that the movie didn't earn it. I disagree. I think that the plot of the movie was leading up to Pimbacker's sabotage and attack the entire time. Mace's death is the most disappointing, I think, in terms of satisfaction, given that he wasn't murdered by Pimbacker, and also didn't intentionally sacrifice himself like Searle did. I mean, he did, but he also didn't, you know? He only died because he was so cold, he couldn't pull himself out of the coolant in time, and his leg got caught on the mainframe, pinning him half-submerged in the coolant and freezing to death. Okay, yeah, he sacrificed himself by making the willing choice to complete his duty by fixing the mainframe, but he didn't know that that was going to happen. Unlike Searle, who knew he was going to die, because he was in space. The bit where Cassie tries to save Kappa and they accidentally rip Pimbacker's sun-baked arm off, that shit's horrifying. It's horrifying. Kappa, similar to Searle, has a strange experience with death, though instead of staring into the sun, is at the point of the bomb's detonation, having reached the sun, and uses his last seconds to reach out and touch the sun itself in one beautiful unrealistic final moment of life. Sunshine is a thriller in space that plays on the fear of us all. Death and the end. Like the end. What happens when our planet gives up? Or in this case, the sun? How far are we willing to go to save humanity? And what if that plan fails? We have a group of people willing to do whatever it takes Fuck off, Harvey. to deliver a stellar bomb to the sun even though the plan at its core is purely theoretical. The film is claustrophobic, personal, angry, human, and afraid, capturing a crew that feels alone because they are. They don't know what to say in their messages to their families after however long they've been in space. What more is there to say? 
I had a fight with Mace today. The sun feels lethal, snatching Kaneda and Searle, and eventually Harvey, destroying anything its fire reaches, like Harvey. That's the last time I'll mention him. I'm sorry. Sunshine throws the crew together and you feel for them. You feel for Mace's anger and Kappa's discomfort, Trey's guilt, Corey's heartbreak, Searle's passion. It's palpable. It's palpable. And it enriches the experience of each viewing. The movie is great. I hope there's never a sequel where we find out Kappa or Pinbacker survived and made it back to Earth, or that the bomb didn't work, and instead the whole thing disintegrated and then you descend Icarus 3. I'd fervently decry that movie's existence. Let's let great movies lie. This one gets a very healthy 8 out of 10. Damn. I think I need to go watch another good movie. Let's talk next week. Don't forget, you can reply to this podcast with a voice message if you have the Anchor app, or you can send me an email at movielovershow at gmail.com if you want to request a movie be discussed, or hey, even co-host an episode. Either way, you'll probably wind up on the next episode of Movie Lover 22.